Welcome to Forests, Folklore, and Fantasy. My name is Kelly Rice, but I write and publish under my initials, K.M. Rice. Wherever you are, I hope this episode finds you happy, healthy, and hale as much as possible. And please know, you have my utmost gratitude for lending me your ear. Today, I am going to be talking about the concept of fantasy as a literary genre, and of course, also in its various adaptations um, in film and in video games. But mostly my focus is going to be on the bookscape, <laughs> the the literary landscape that uh, that we know as fantasy and how I see it and how I interact with it. So just as a reminder, I am not only a reader of fantasy, but I am also a published author, and I'm quite comfortable calling myself a fantasy author. To date, I have not written any high fantasy. Um, my biggest series right now is a historical fantasy uh, series that people have compared to Diana Gabaldon's Outlander, which, you know, it's funny, if you look up Outlander, you will often find it in the science fiction section of a bookshop, or whether it's virtual or a physical bookshop, which I find amusing because there's, there's no science really in it um, for the element that makes it fantastical. Um, so really, it should be historical fantasy. And I think it has since found its own way, uh, its own um, little little niche on the bookshelf. Um, in fact, as I'm recording this, I'm realizing that from the time period that I started to try to put some feelers out there about my historical fantasy series um, to now, so that was probably around 2015 or 2016 to now, I can comfortably say I've witnessed the birth of historical fantasy as a genre. I remember being in conversation with friends in the industry and people saying like, well, yeah, I mean, you and I can acknowledge it, but until it's got a label on the bookcase, um, it's going to be very difficult for publishers and or agents to acknowledge it. But I think, I think it's been established now. So that's pretty cool that just in the last few years, we've seen this genre of fantasy come into its own or this subgenre of fantasy, I should say, to be a bit more articulate. But I'm interested today in having an examination of fantasy in very broad terms and see if any of my thoughts here resonate with you because I think that I'm voicing what a lot of us feel. In fact, when I was writing my notes for this episode, I was realizing that I was articulating, or at least attempting to articulate and giving voice to things I have felt very deeply inside for a long time and just haven't had either the platform or the environment to hold discourse. 
about these ideas. And so now that I have a podcast, um, I can share them and help hopefully spark some conversation and facilitate some discussion about these ideas. And I want to say that I am coming at this from the point of view of an elder millennial. Uh, so I have been around the block a time or two. That said, I'm definitely not one of the venerated elders in our community, but I'm not a young young person e either anymore. I'm relatively young, but I'm not um, I'm not someone up and coming who may have a different perspective on what constitutes fantasy, especially in pop culture. So with that aside, and I'm sure there'll be more anecdotes along the way, let's get into the points of conversation for today. So within my own friendships and people who I have met either while getting my creative writing degree, which I have a master of fine arts and creative writing with an emphasis on fiction, um, or just going to conventions. If you didn't know, I have not missed a year of San Diego Comic-Con since 2012, other than um, the year that there was no presence because of the global pandemic. Um, and I've been to several other conventions, usually as a speaker, but often as an attendee. And I started off as an attendee. Um, so I've made lots of wonderful friends by going to these conventions. And um, if you don't know, these comic book conventions aren't just for comic book fans. And it's a great way to just let your geek flag f fly and you can relax and move about in circles with the assumption that everyone's some kind of a geek or a nerd and you're not necessarily going to be judged. And I'm going to circle back to that in a moment. But through over 10 years of having these interactions and these conversations, I've observed something that's probably fairly obvious. And that is that there is a large amount of crossover between people or among people who have an interest in fantasy as a genre and also in myths and mythology. Uh, and I think there's a very significant reason for that. And while it may be commonly accepted in our geek circles, I can attest to, based on the education I received <laughs> um, as a fiction writer, it's not necessarily viewed in the same light that we view it in other literary circles. And that is the concept of fantasy as a genre being our modern form of mythology, our modern form of myth-telling, and our moder modern form of myth-making. To provide a little context for those statements, I will say, think about myth. Think about most myths. Think about the Odyssey. Think about many of the stories about Loki. Most myths, if not all, begin in a time outside of time. 
sometimes they are anchored in place so that the hearer or the listener has some sense of their culture being directly connected. But by and large, they take place in a time outside of time. Once upon a time. And this is something I'm interested in exploring in perhaps another episode, this concept of the fairy tale. The fact that we refer to largely English and Germanic folktales as fairy tales is doing them a little bit of an injustice given the cultural role that they have played and where they came from. Um, but again, this this concept of opening with once upon a time. We don't know what time. We don't know how long ago this was. And I'm sure many of you are muttering under your breath right now, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Because of course... George Lucas was drawing heavily from the research of, of folks like Joseph Campbell and wanting to recreate this mythic feel and tell a journey that more or less matched the hero's journey step by step. Um, so, yes, there, there's a reason that they're connected. It's not a coincidence that he used the same language uh, as nearly as Once Upon a Time. So... Most high fantasy, similarly, takes place in another realm, right? So often it is removed physically from us. Sometimes, yeah, modern fantasy takes that extra step that a lot of mythology doesn't take by removing us in place too. So most of them are set in a realm all of its own, all of the author's making, um, Middle Earth, created by J.R.R. Tolkien, is a great example. In fact, the whole concept of there being a Middle Earth, which I should correct, the world Tolkien created should more accurately be referred to as Arda. Middle Earth was a continent in his world. Um, but of course, he is borrowing from the Anglo-Saxon culture, from the Anglo-Saxon belief that we here on this earth are in a middle plane. We, on, we are on Midonierta, the middle earth. There is an above world and there is a below world. After Christianization, it was Heafon, heaven, uh, and the underworld, or hell. Um, I'm not quite comfortable calling it hell. Uh, so, this liminal concept was very important to Tolkien. And I'm bringing up Tolkien now, not only because is it very convenient for me, because I'm very well versed on Tolkien, and so likely are many of my listeners, but also because Tolkien is regarded as the founder of the modern fantasy genre of literature as we know it. It's very difficult to find a piece of high fantasy literature that does not directly draw from Tolkien in some way. And what's fascinating to me, and again, I am deep into geek circles, what's fascinating to me is to be exposed to other fantasy series such as the Aragon 
books, or rather the inheritance cycle, and have terms like orcs just be tossed around as um, some of the bad guys. Whereas that those were an invention of Tolkien, but now they've just sort of become a staple in the fantasy landscape. And it's just accepted that this type of creature or something of that ilk should be present to be um, some of the antagonist's henchmen. So in that way and very many others, it's very difficult to imagine the fantasy genre outside of Tolkien or outside of his realm of influence. And... Okay, so we've established that most high fantasy. And by high fantasy, I should quantify that. Again, I'm going to have to turn to Tolkien. Most people know the story of the Lord of the Rings is a quest by a hobbit. So, sorry guys, but a, a type of being that doesn't actually exist. Um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe there's like a conspiracy theory out there that hobbits are real. I do know that there was a, a hominid species... Um, uncovered in the last like 15 years that people kind of refer to as hobbits because they were so small but um barring that i i don't really not that i've come across a, a conspiracy of there actually being hobbits and them being real so hopefully it's safe for me to say that hobbits are a fantastical invention of tolkien's imagination and the story is about a hobbit one of the smallest denizens of his world uh, having to go on a quest to destroy an evil ring in which is encased all of the malice and and uh, conquest, desire to conquer and control and suppress and oppress the free peoples of his world uh, by the enemy. And so, in theory, if he destroys that, he destroys the enemy, or at least the enemy's power. So high fantasy usually deals with uh, quests, magical objects... Um, again, this concept of outside of our time, outside of our space, in a another realm where there are different civilizations, often different species, we're often dealing with, again, due to Tolkien's influence, some form of creatures who are small in stature, like halflings, um, with elves. Sometimes they are good elves, sometimes they are, I'll just call them bad elves. Um, often dwarves, and often humans or humanoid creatures, uh, just to name a few. So that is, again, in part influenced by Tolkien, but also because most of these creatures or, or entities can be traced back to European myths and European folklore. And so they feel very familiar to us in some sense. Uh, and that way, the um, fantasy deals with archetypes. And these creatures are representatives of those archetypes. Mythology and folklore, and thus by extension, fantasy, largely draw on archetypes. And I'm going to give you a couple different definitions of of what that word means. It means uh, a recurrent symbol or motif in literature, art, or mythology. Um, an original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. 
representing or constituting an original type after which other similar things are patterned. So it would be safe to look at myths as archetypes. And then Tolkien, if you're if if you agree with viewing him as at least, if not the founder, one of the founders of our modern concept of fantasy literature, he created many archetypes that again he was just borrowing or being using his storytelling as a conduit to convey these mythological archetypes. Um, so it's quite common in fantasy literature to use things of that nature. And the answer as to why is manyfold. The one that speaks to me the most and that I feel in my heart is because by using these archetypal concepts and figures and ideas and ideals, you're engaging with symbols. And symbols cross cultural barriers. They cross age barriers. They cross gender barriers. They can even cross language barriers. We can understand a story about a hobbit needing to destroy a ring that exists outside of our space and time, outside of our understanding of the world, we can connect with that no matter what our background is because they're so universal in nature. And that leads me to my next topic of conversation, which is this concept of fantasy as an exploratory realm. Because if we are in a different place and in a different time, if we are outside of the everyday, personally, I feel much safer there. Don't get me wrong. Most fantasy worlds have absolutely harrowing villains, all consuming darkness. But what those archetypes represent are parts of ourselves. The external landscape in high fantasy is actually a mirror reflection of the internal landscape. And the same can be said for global mythology. in this landscape that feels safe to me because, again, it's outside of the, quote, real world. We can explore concepts such as the big things, such as birth, such as death, such as love, friendship, loyalty, the nature of conquest and oppression, and we're viewing it as symbols. People who don't get this think it's simplified. I mean, how many times have you heard fantasy, and I should add, a lot of science fiction also falls under this umbrella. I mean, I opened with a Star Wars reference, right? But how many times in your life have you heard fantasy mocked, or made fun of, or considered something only meant for children and young people? Because there's still this cultural perception that it somehow 
simple. I don't think that could be further from the truth. In these alternate realms and landscapes where we are playing with symbols, we can explore these big issues without necessarily triggering real-world knee-jerk defense mechanisms. And again, I am speaking from personal experience here. My love of Tolkien and his works have led me to forge friendships with people with whom I am likely holding opposing political views. I don't think that was proper English, but <laughs> with people from all different walks of life. I have made friendships with people that I, under other circumstances, would never have crossed paths with, much less thought that I had something in common with. That's not child's play. And it's also a testament to how fantasy and the worlds of fantasy provide a safe space essentially for our psyches to explore these concepts again without the baggage of our real-world identities. Most fantasy stories also present alternate visions of society. They can either reflect what we observe in our own society and maybe make it hyperbolic, maybe make it larger than life. Like there is this common theme of there is a, a, a line between good and evil, or at least a polarization of good and evil in fantasy. And again, that echoes mythology. Is that reflected in the real world? The logarithms would have you think so. Certain folks in the media would have you think, think so. Have I actually, truthfully, honestly observed that in my time on this earth so far? I have not. I have not observed something that is actually so polarizing as the concept of good and evil. I've heard many, of pe many people make those claims and label things good and evil. But I can't honestly sit here and tell you that I have witnessed good or witnessed evil. I've witnessed different intentions. And things that I grossly, like, at my core disagree with. And things that I very much feel are being done with the interests of, of goodwill at heart. But in this alternate realm of fantasy and myth... Again, we can play with, safely play with the symbols and be like, this is the one you're not supposed to root for. Or perhaps you are. Perhaps it's to make you think about it. And here's the one you are supposed to root for, or perhaps you're not. So maybe I am contradicting myself here, but in a lot of mythology, we're, we meet characters in situations that are presented as good and evil, or rather protagonists and antagonists, but you're questioning the entire time. Look at, for example, Achilles, the great hero, warrior of the Greeks. He's not actually a very admirable person, not only by our modern viewpoint, but even from an ancient Greek viewpoint. What are you supposed to do with that? So, again, fantasy 
holds up a mirror. It can reflect what we see in our society and amplify it. Or it can hold up a mirror and an alternative, perhaps, to what we have in our society. And one thing that I love is that again and again, and these fantastical tales, they often give a voice to the voiceless. Again, I return to the Lord of the Rings and to Frodo. Frodo is a hobbit who is one of the physically smallest creatures in his world. He's a hobbit. And there's many layers to that. Again, we're playing with the symbol of this person's just a little man, a little everyday man. And is he capable of creating great change? Is he actually capable of thwarting oppression? I'm not going to spoil that for you. You're going to read the book because the answer might not be as clear cut as you think. But um, I love that. I love that concept of empowering the people who feel disempowered. And again, that's probably says more about the storytellers than perhaps the story. It could also say more about the audience than perhaps the story itself. But the same is true of, of myth, that myths say more about the myth makers and the tellers of these tales and the culture that birthed them than necessarily the mechanics of the storytelling itself. Which brings me to my next talking point, which is the concept of fantasy being a form of escapism. I actually don't see it that way. I see fantasy as a form of shelter. So if you're following my line of thinking, we've established the reasons that fantasy is, quote, safe, unquote, uh, because it disarms us, takes us to an alternate place in time, and allows us to safely engage with really big concepts, or at least archetypes or symbols that represent these really big concepts that have massive influences on our life. Again, love and death and oppression and the fight for what we perceive to be justice. I don't see fantasy as an escape to a world where things are orderly and tidy. And again, I think that's a misconception from people who aren't really familiar with the genre. They, they get to the point where they recognize that the tale is being told through largely through some form of symbology but they don't make that next leap to understand how much more complex that actually is fantasy to me is a deep dive and often a deep dive into the psyche now this is going to be a little bit of my personal bias here which i'm sure this entire podcast is my personal bias but as someone who went through a master of fine arts creative writing program and was interested in writing fantasy. Um, by the way, I was not at a point in my journey where I 
felt like that was a accepted or acceptable playground to play in, um, given the tone of all of the other work submitted and to comments made by my peers. Um, I opened with sharing my age or uh, my age bracket rather, because I do think that there has been more of a shift. Um, I'm hoping that writing communities and that um, our cultural culture in general is more open to fantasy. But when I was growing up, it was a nerd thing. Like Star Wars was considered a nerd thing. Star Wars successfully made the transition into popular culture a long time ago. So did Harry Potter. So did the Lord of the Rings. So did Game of Thrones. There are many people who would say, oh, I love Game of Thrones. And you'd ask, are you a fantasy fan? And I'd scoff and say, no. Not even being self-aware enough to realize they're consuming fantasy and they love fantasy. Um, so since I was young and since I was getting my education in this field, I do think that there has been a cultural shift. And that largely comes down to economy because Harry Potter was a smash hit. The Lord of the Rings films were a hit. Um, and so studios and publishers follow the money trail. Uh, Twilight. Twilight can be considered fantasy. That was a hit. So we have a lot of examples we can hold up, including The Hunger Games, of books, series that crossed over into film series and or TV series and were incredibly financially successful. And that, by and large, solidified them. Uh, as part of popular culture rather than as anything fringe. Um, but when I was getting my education, I was exposed to a lot of what we refer to as literary fiction. And I was frustrated often because my classmates and the overall culture of my university wanted to make fun of successful authors who were writing in the fantasy genre and act as if they somehow hadn't earned what they have, that somehow being successful wasn't something that we should aspire to. I do not really consider myself a financially successful author. My readership is quite small, but I know I have connected with people's hearts and souls and uh, I would be delighted if one of my books took off and was on a bestseller list. I felt kind of weird to be sat there thinking, I mean, don't we want success? Don't we want to, like, earn some income and, you know, achieve the dream of supporting ourselves on our work, on our writing? Uh, but that was laughed at, like, if it, if it didn't fit the certain parameters. If it was someone in literary fiction, usually the the concept of their finances didn't really come into the equation. It was more, oh, haven't they, haven't they achieved this remarkable feat? And what I saw in literary fiction was a direct parallel, more or less, to what I was consuming in the fantasy books I was reading at the time. And that, again, was stories grappling with these very human massive concepts of of death and heartbreak and things of that nature except they i viewed literary fiction as having a different toolbox to fantasy fiction whereas fantasy 
plays with symbols out of which you can get whatever you project onto them but also you can deep dive into them literary fiction was dealing with what i will call real world incidences um such as gender relationships toxic gender dynamics um, the death of a parent debilitating illness sexual assault things that I did not need to be reminded of were part of my daily existence. And I think that's where what I perceive to be a misconception comes into play, that fantasy is escapism. I'm choosing not to necessarily consume the stories that reflect my the pain of my everyday life, in such explicit terms in favor of stories that again have a layer removed so that I feel like I am in a different time and space and exploring these things, these concepts in a more symbolic way. And I suppose there is some escapism in that, in that I am leaving my everyday reality. But again, I return to this what it feels like to me is shelter. I'm going into a more sheltered harbor where I can look at these things also without it being um, triggering knee-jerk reactions in myself, even. And I suppose this is why, for me personally, I return to how much I appreciate that fantasy elevates the voiceless and gives a voice to the voiceless because when you are living in a world in which you feel like you often have no recourse, when you often do feel disempowered, where you often feel like the prevailing attitude is, well, this is just how things are, and you don't like the way things are, you don't like the way you've been treated, What, where do you have to turn? Fantasy provides an empowering space where maybe you're not able to read The Lord of the Rings and then go call your congressperson and advocate for the change that you want. But it gives you the sheltered space to have some understanding and acceptance and healing of whatever it is that you're going through so that when you do reemerge, out of this other time and space and come back to the real world, you will hopefully be doing so standing a little taller, feeling a little more secure in who you are and in what you've been through. It's like going on the hero's journey, hearing the call to adventure and leaving the safety and security of the status quo, going through this transformative adventure and then returning except we don't even have to step out the front door it's it's something that purely happens in our imaginations and that astounds me how miraculous and amazing is that sadly i think this value was not seen in fantasy for a long time because of, I'm just going to call it bullying, um, 
in the like 60s, 70s, 80s, people who are into fantasy were more often than not, and I know there are exceptions, but more often than not, the people who, as I just described, felt like they they lacked some agency. They were often the people who were picked on or bullied, the people who were othered in some way. And they found solace in these tales that really are our modern myths. And they found safe harbor there. They found introspection there. They found reflection there. They found some form of healing there. And I think because of the people who were being othered, being associated with this genre, the genre itself was then othered and ostracized. So again, like I said, in my childhood, things that we now accept as popular culture were fringe. They were things that were mocked and the people who had an interest in them and a passion for them and a love for them were mocked for that passion. Sadly, I think that still happens. Um, but I do feel like in my lifetime, we have witnessed, again, this shift into so many fantasy properties becoming cash cows that uh, many of these classics have shifted into popular culture. But to give you an actual anecdote, as an example of what I'm talking about in terms of things that were perceived as fantasy or sometimes are perceived as fantasy being ostracized, I will tell you a story from my time in graduate school. I have already shared this story in answer to a question on TikTok, so I feel like it's safe enough to share here. And I want to preface it by saying I have absolutely no ill will at all toward any of my former classmates. Um, I just think that this was really, I'm going to use the word again, symbolic of, or rather more accurately, representative of the prevailing attitude and culture, at least in my school. Um, and I went to school in the Silicon Valley. So... I feel like the the students there were representative of this kind of microcosm of California. Um, I wouldn't read into that too much, but I just wanted to provide some context. So, as I said, um, I didn't realize that fantasy <laughs> was really something that I could do. Um, because that wasn't something that I was really exposed to much in my um, graduate studies. In fact, we had this great professor who more or less had to fight to be allowed to teach a course on fantasy and science fiction literature. And it was a fantastic course. Um and I remember he actually got tears in his eyes at the end of the semester when we were thanking him for it because it was such a struggle to get the academia to accept that there was any value whatsoever in teaching 
science fiction, and fantasy literature. So use that as your baseline. I was getting increasingly disinterested and bored with stories just set in the here and now. I was, um, when I was in grad school, I was fascinated by magical realism because I felt like, well, isn't this doing what they want me to do? Isn't this writing, quote, literature? Uh, while introducing something, oh, I don't know, interesting? <laughs> um, so... My thesis at the time was a tale that will probably never see the light of day because it was really forced, um, where I was trying to use very modern literary concepts, but add this spark of magical realism to it because that was really what I wanted to write. I know I mentioned in my introductory episode that I studied Old English and had my own little translation of Beowulf. And that was much more fresh in my mind at the time. And I wanted to try my hand, as audacious as it sounds, try my hand at writing a tale that felt Anglo-Saxon in nature. In fact, I correct my the statement I just made. I do not write from a place of having a preconceived notion. I'm not a plotter or planner. I wrote a line, and then everything developed from that line. I believe the line was, the charred remains of the cabin stuck out of the snow like the bloodied ribs of a wolf kill. I didn't know where I was in time or space, because I was lost in myth, and in fact, as I'm recording this, I'm thinking... There is something really, there is this ethereal, deep connection between the pro creative process of telling a story and going into this nebulous time and space of myth in the myth mythic landscape. But anyway, um, so that was the opening. And from there, I met these characters and I found out what their grief was and wrote a story set in the culture of Beowulf. Like, as in the the people, the Anglo-Saxon culture, the people who knew of Beowulf because it was a story in their culture too. And it was meant to be, it was historical fantasy, actually. Now that I, now that I just established that's a genre and that's a thing, at the start of this episode, it was historical fantasy. I didn't have the literacy at the time to, no pun intended, literacy, to, uh, or vocabulary. Again, no pun intended. Wow, I am just, I'm pushing my glasses up my nose here. Okay, that, like, literally, I just did that. That wasn't, like, a euphemism for something. Whoops, and now I hit the microphone. All right, let's take a moment to reset. <laughs> I didn't know that that was a genre at the time. Um, so I wrote this Anglo-Saxon story. And there was a slight supernatural element in it and that there is, um, oh, by the way, you can read this story for free. It's on my website. It's called The Walkers in Darkness. Um, so without spoiling it for you, in case you want to go read it, it's, it is a short read. Um, there is a shadowy nemesis that I, in my own imagination, have an explanation for, but I don't want to share that with you right now because it's always, you know, as with all art, it's up to the eye of the beholder or the imagination of the beholder. So, um, 
it was very much grounded in reality and in the Anglo-Saxon tradition. I even went through after um, having the story workshopped, one of the most useful pieces of feedback I had was to, as much as possible, eliminate uh, Latinate words, eliminate uh, words that originated in Latin, just to really highlight our Anglo-Saxon heritage as English speakers uh, with our language. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> this is all sort of tangential information. When I wrote this story, and I was excited by it. You know, that opening line that I just repeated to you, I'm like, that's pretty, that's pretty entrancing. This is, this is good. I'm excited to see what people think. Um, there were battles in it. People had swords because, you know, people had swords in the past. I mean, some of us still have swords, myself included. And I was really disheartened because every single person didn't want to touch it. And maybe I'm casting a wide net here by saying every single person. But it was a big disappointment for me. And if you don't know how a traditional creative writing workshop works, you give everyone the piece before you're going to discuss it. Everyone goes home and reads it, comes in the day of the discussion. The author or the writer is meant to sit there silent and everyone converses about the piece and you can't have any input because you're meant to just be learning their perceptions and it can be really useful but um in this case i won't say that anyone was cruel but they were borderline just laughing over what i had written and on the back of the story everyone has the opportunity to provide written feedback to the writer Often that's something that maybe they don't feel comfortable saying in front of the class, or at least that's what I discovered, because almost every single classmate wrote, I don't know how to critique this. I don't read sword and sorcery. And I was unfamiliar with that term, sword and sorcery, so I just kind of learned it. And it was like, what are they talking about? They're acting like this is Lord of the Rings. Uh, there's no magic. There's no sorcery. They have swords because it's set in a specific historic, well, not very specific, but a historic era. And in fact, one of my classmates, this is backing up on the timeline, one of my classmates, the day that my story was going to be workshop, didn't realize that I was standing in the hall. And one of my friends said, what did you think of it? And he said, oh, you mean her ripoff of Beowulf? And then he was like, didn't you think that's what it was? <laughs> and then my friend, because he knew I was there, he said, I'm not really going to say that with her standing right there. Which, you know, in retrospect, like, neither of them were being that great. But <laughs> the one guy was still my friend at the time. Um, and I'm just like, hi, wasn't meant to be a ripoff. I mean, that's why there's a direct reference to Beowulf in there. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> they live in the world where... You know, that is an epic poem in their world, too. So, there, 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 you know, I was trying to deal with that, maybe unsuccessfully, but that was my attempt. Um, so, basically, it was poo-pooed. And, again, I was just saddened and frustrated. I think it was my last story of the year, too. And I'm like, okay, I have, like, no feedback at all. Except for my professor. And he used curse words when he wrote me. My written feedback that I probably shouldn't say here. Suffice it that he wrote on like a third of the page the words F word, yeah. 
There is no postmodern slang for a cat footing around here. This is just action and story. And I can't tell you how refreshing it is for me to read this and how much I enjoyed it. And that was so validating. It was so validating because he understood it. And it was also validating to my experience of reading my other classmates' work and being like, this is boring. Like, what's happening? Like, where's something interesting? Um, and I was happy to know that I at least gave him a breath of fresh air. People in my program were obsessed. To this day, I don't know what they're talking about. They were obsessed with trying to write the next great American novel. What does that even mean? I thought there was like a quasi-consensus that Mark Twain had already done that, or Henry Melville. Uh, personally, personally, I think it was Lisa May Alcott, but Little Women, but that's just me. Um, like, how, how egotistical? I mean, I don't know. Anyway, that's a, that's a different topic of conversation. Um, so anyway, after I read this positive response from my professor, I sent him an email saying like, thank you, I really appreciate it. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do because um, since it was what my last story, I think we usually had two stories workshopped, if not three, but usually two. Um, your task was to rewrite at least one of them for your grade. And that was the one I was going to rewrite. And I said, I'm not really sure how to approach this because the feedback I got was most people just essentially writing it off saying, I saw a sword. This is nerd crap. I don't read it. Um, that's what it felt like the response was. And I remember his response was, your classmates just didn't understand what you're doing. And sometimes that happens and it's okay. It's okay if they didn't get it. Others will. I got it. So the story has stuck with me after all these years because it ultimately, even though I was so frustrated and saddened and disappointed at the time, it ultimately was a very cataclysmic moment <laughs> that not only validated so much of what I was feeling, but I felt like it, I was kind of thrown into the cauldron and then reborn as, I don't want to say as a fantasy author, but really as someone who had realized she had found her voice and her literary voice and that if others didn't understand it or didn't connect with it, they just were not my intended audience. But that didn't mean that I shouldn't still continue to write the stories that meant something to me. And that my dear listeners, is what I did. I would love to have, like, the punchline conclusion of, like, and now I'm a New York Times bestseller. But that would be a lie. I'm not. Um, <laughs> I did I did win best local author for several years in a row, though, in my little community. That That's, you know, I wear that mantle proudly. I do, I do want to share that I had a friend who actually could turn around and say that I became a New York Times bestseller. Um, her pen name is Marina Adair, and she went through the same program I went through and faced a lot of the same, I'll call it prejudice, that I faced, except she was not writing fantasy. 
she was writing category romance. Um, so she also had very similar frustrations and felt a lot of self-doubt over how her classmates reacted. So basically anything that was perceived as fitting into a genre that was marketable um, was poo-pooed. And I don't find that a very helpful attitude. If you don't want to write in those genres, that's fine. Don't write in those genres. Um, it's also perfectly fine to say, hey, I don't really read this stuff as a reader, so I'm not quite sure how um, how to compare this to maybe genre standards. However, here's what hit home to me. Here's what spoke to me. Here's where I felt like, ah, this, your heart just wasn't in it. This, this feels like a trope that's being recycled. Here's where I feel like you didn't actually earn the payoff that you tried to earn. Here's where I thought this character's dialogue really shone. You can still provide a critique for heaven's sake. So it wasn't just fantasy. But like I said, she, she can turn around now and say, oh, hmm, I actually have built a career on my novels. And in fact, even had one adapted to a film by the Hallmark Channel. So if you're into category romance, look her up. And in conclusion to my uh, sharing my, many of my thoughts on fantasy, um, on the subject of romance, personally, I view romance and romantic comedy to me that's fantasy i'm gonna sound so jaded but the idea of like you're just this girl bumbling through life in some way and you've got your struggles and then there's this like really cute guy and there's like cute guys everywhere and they're just like all so helpful and they all just like want to be there for you and like you just kind of have like cute tidy little struggles and then like they get resolved to me that's fantasy and escapism i watch that stuff when I'm like, I've had such a difficult day, I need to leave everything, every reminder of like hardship and reality and just be submerged into something fluffy and happy. And I'm not saying that my friend necessarily writes stuff that's fluffy and happy, but on the whole, that to me, the romantic comedy is like true escapism and fantasy. So make of that what you will i feel like i'm still just getting my legs under me with this podcast in many ways and one of my sources of frustration has been the lack of the ability of listeners to comment when i want to spark discussion and conversation especially with an episode like this so i can say that these episodes are also hosted on YouTube and you can comment there, but I've also started putting them up on my Patreon and they're of course completely free to access and we can have a discussion over on my Patreon. So I will put the link to that in the show notes if you feel moved to join my slowly growing community over there. Of course, if you really like what you see or what you hear, you can become a, a paying patron. But um, Patreon now also offers the opportunity for you to be uh, a free member of my community as well, which is really exciting. I'm really grateful that they have that as a choice now. 
to further support my fellow creatives in the fantasy community, I want to share once more that the beautiful music that you've heard in this episode was composed by Lane Thomas from his fantasy album, The Lands Beyond. And I will also put a link to purchase that in the show notes. As ever, thank you so very much for your time and for listening. And until next time, may your hearth be warm and your heart be full. Mm-hmm.